Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 is coming up on the screens, but I'm going to start back in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God that when the day of evil comes, you you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, with feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take the shield of faith with which to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and sword of spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. With this in mind, be alert and pray for all the saints with all kinds of prayers and requests. The reality of spiritual evil, the existence of a devil and demons, hasn't been questioned in historic Christianity until recently. Yet this topic is more relevant to the condition of the world than all talk about politics and international relationships and so on. It's the difference between dealing with the disease, pneumonia, and dealing with its symptoms like fear and headaches and phlegm and coughing and such. The disease itself is the thing that really matters. This is the same mistake our culture has made concerning evil. Because society doesn't believe in a personal devil or the the evil dwelling within each of us, vast energy and resources have been expended trying to cure what are only the effects or symptoms of evil. There's three ways they've tried to do it. The first one is through legislation. But this is an inadequate Uh, solution, for in the end, you can't make enough laws to curb all sinful and wicked behavior. It is amazing to me that hundreds and hundreds of laws keep getting passed all over the place. There are so many laws on the books today, current today, that nobody knows what the laws actually are. And next year, they're going to have to draw up some more, because they're always trying to curb evil. That's why In a free democratic society, it only works. A free democratic society only works if you have Christianity at its its core. Without it, people have no fear of the Lord, and then they have to be controlled on the inside and the outside. Legislation doesn't work. Neither can you assign a policeman to every person on the planet. The questions are being raised with the terrorism that is, is, is increasing and on the rise. Uh, we, need, we need more and more policemen all the time, but you finally can't, you can't get a policeman for every, every person. Further, laws are helpless to tame the inward man and his thoughts from which all such evil springs up in the first place. There's another way they try to curb evil and control evil and deal with evil, and it's just symptomatic, and that's through education. Educators begin with a faulty premise that man is basically good at birth and learns bad behavior through inadequate education. 
failing to take into account the reality of evil in the world, both inside and outside of us, they just end up making us more clever in our evil. You just have smarter thieves now. Scores of, uh, I mean, our newspapers are filled with scores of stories about politicians, educated politicians and educators and lawyers and judges and business people who have shipwrecked their own lives or been imprisoned for crimes. Education doesn't change evil. It doesn't deal with the devil. It doesn't deal with the root. It's just trying to work with the symptoms there's a third way they've tried, and that is through improving the social environment. Billions of dollars have been spent trying to improve living conditions in the hopes that it would stem evil. The results of these efforts have been dismal and very disappointing. Contrast that with countless Christians down through history who have lived in dire circumstances yet have been models of grace and kindness and patience and long-suffering and love. It has nothing to do with social circumstances. And that's why, despite man's best efforts, little has changed in the world. It is remarkable how much advance there has been in technology and in science and all these things and all the gadgets and all the, all the things we've figured out. And yet when it comes to the human condition and relationships between people and, and, and nations, we haven't made any progress whatsoever. None. And that's why, despite man's best efforts, little has changed in the world. That's why we say things like this. History repeats itself. And others say, uh, and others have said, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. It just keeps repeating itself. It's left many in the world bewildered. Yu Thant, a former Secretary General of the U United Nations, was speaking about the requirements of peace before 67 distinguished scholars and statesmen in the audience from 19 countries of the world. Uh, among an audience of about 2,500 people. And he asked them this, and I quote, What element is lacking so that with all our skill and all our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? What is it that inhibits us from going forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and to reap the harvest of human experience? Why is it that... For all our professed ideals, our hopes, our skills, peace on earth is still a distant objective seen only dimly through the storms and turmoils of our present difficulties. Interestingly, Paul had already answered his question. He said the problem, in summary, he basically said the problem is we're facing a personal devil who is behind much of the trouble in the world today. This is the teaching of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the Bible speaks of evil, the word evil itself. It speaks of it hundreds of times in the Bible. Not, not once or twice. And we ignore this topic to our own peril. Evil is on the rise in our world. Make no mistake about it. And there's reason for it. And we're going to come to that verse a little bit later in the message because he who holds back the lawless one or the devil is letting go. 
This subject is more relevant today than ever before for that reason. Well, let's begin by taking a look at, you see, we can't talk about the armor. There's no, in fact, there's no point in talking about the armor if we don't talk about the enemy. Because we're not going to pick up the armor, we're not going to see the need for it, the urgency for picking up the armor and understanding it and, 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 and using it if we don't really think we have a problem. Isn't that true? There's no uh, point in beginning with a solution before we've got the problem and that we understand it. So that's why we're talking about it uh, today. The world... Is it really the world, the flesh, and the devil? I mean, that's what we always say. What we're really fighting is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Is that, is that really completely accurate in the way we say it? Well, yes, we are in one sense, yet Paul says there is really only one enemy, the devil. And here's why. Satan uses the world and the flesh as channels through which to attack and to destroy us. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. So already we've got the world there, that we've got, now we've got the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So there we have it. We have the world, we've got the devil, and we've got the flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's look at the first channel, the flesh. What, what does he mean by that? People may say, we weren't aware of any control of the devil in our lives. Of course not. You followed the natural desires of the body and mind. And when the Bible says flesh, of course, it's using it in a metaphorical sense. It's not talking about our bodies, uh, per se. It's talking about the urge to self-centeredness within us. Isn't, there, isn't it true that there is this urge? It's, isn't it difficult? Do, do you find, even as a Christian, do you find a pull when you have to give up something that would be fun for yourself in order to do something for someone else? It's difficult, isn't it? That's, a, that's the urge, that's that human, distortion of the human nature towards self-centeredness. The distortion which makes us want to be our own God and be in charge. Nobody tells me what to do. You know, that kind of feeling. That proud ego, that uncrucified self, the seat of willful rebellion against authority. We're all born with it. That's why we don't have to teach our kids how to lie or steal or cheat or, or fight. They, they're experts at it. Have you ever noticed it? <laughs> and, and these foolish people in society who say that it's because it's modeled, maybe they need to raise some kids. I mean, they need no modeling, no education. It's automatic. Our kids were doing stuff. I mean, I remember Chris. Uh, sorry, he's going to be your pastor, but... <laughs> he could just barely talk, and he's in a bathtub uh, with Julie, who couldn't talk, and he... And, and, and Alm's friend heard this bang in the, in, in the bathroom. She goes uh, running in there, thinks some, something 
horrendous has happened, and she sees this plastic, well, no, this hard plastic duck, you know, one that floats in the water, but it's hard plastic, and it's laying uh, wet and dripping on the floor. She realizes somebody threw that. So she said, who threw this? And Chris said, Julie. And Julie uttered her first word at that moment. And she pointed at Chris and said, Chris! <laughs> so she said, Chris, did you throw that? And he turned beet red. And he, he, had, done, he had actually done it. You don't have to teach him. We're, we're good at it. It's, it's within us. It's that, it's that part of us, the flesh, as he talks about it. Now, look what James says about it. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and what? Demonic. He works through that. It is the devil attacking through the flesh with its inclinations, its, its uh, distorted inclinations. He distorts it, he twists it, and changes it from what God intended. Tempting all the time. And all the time we think it's our desire. You see, Satan doesn't work. The devil doesn't work the way many people think. They say, well, it can't be a devil because, you, you know, you never see him and that kind of stuff. These are just our own thoughts and stuff. Well, if the devil showed up and said, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to destroy your family and I'm going to destroy, do you think anybody would follow him? No. So he camouflages himself. He's an angel of light and he comes with temptations and he comes subtly and quietly. He doesn't care if you don't believe in him. In fact, he's, he's happy about that because then he can influence you and I even better. It's demonic. There's a second channel, not just the flesh, that distorted human nature, but the, the world. This is really important. It, the, the world, on the other, is, is the corporate expression of all the flesh-centered individuals we just talked about. Now you take that corp, you take the sum total of all human beings with that distorted human nature that drive for ego and pride and self-centeredness, and you put that all together, and it becomes a sort of a mind, a corporate mind or expression. Since the flesh is every one of them, acting devilish and sensual and earthly, the total combined expression of such beings constitutes the world and determines the philosophy of the world. It blindly and universally accepts false values, shallow uh, concepts, uh, insights and deluded ideas of reality. It is that tremendous pressure of the majority over the minority to conform, to adjust, to keep in step, and not to digress or be different. Ah, oh, does that sound familiar? That's why the Bible says, Romans chapter 12, 2, do not be conformed to the world. Many, many, many people, not completely incorrectly, but you know, they, they, they memorize that verse or they read that verse and they just go, well, yeah, we're, we're not supposed to be, you know, just uh, be thinking about things of this world and, and, uh, and storing up worldly goods and all those kinds of things. Well, yes, but it's more than that. And I'm going to demonstrate that now. He's saying, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. While the world is totally unaware of it, nevertheless, it is under control of satanic philosophy, manipulation, and control, which is why Paul warned the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, do not let anyone 
take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world and not on Christ. How do you explain how one of the most civilized, sophisticated, educated, and cultured societies in the world and in history, how it could unleash some of the worst horrors the world has ever seen, methodically exterminating over six million Jews and leaving over 60 million people dead. I mean, if you read about Europe at that time, such an advanced society, so civilized, so cultured, how do you explain that? And how do you explain that World War I, if you just move a few years before that, there's something here. Oh, it's my, it's my shoelaces. <clears throat> I was wondering what was troubling me there. <laughs> ah. And how do you explain that World War I, which left 17 million dead, and was often referred to as the war to end all wars, was followed up by these Nazi atrocities in World War II only 21 years later? That was supposed to be the war that would end all wars. 17 million dead. You'd think that would have done it. No, no, no. 21 years later, we got 60 million dead and 6 million gruesomely exterminated. Historians have said that it was because Germany was so humiliated by the subjugation of the Allies after her defeat in World War I. Well, that explains the surface symptom, yes. But how naive to suggest that this explains the root of the problem. Seriously? Surely this cannot explain the vitriol of a so-called civilized people who perpetrated some of the most gruesome and dreadful acts against humans ever recorded. How do you explain that a father of four would go out during the day and commit such ghastly deeds like the Nazi doctors who experimented on living Jewish children and then come back to, their, to a lovely wife and children and sit down to a, a nice supper while, all the while listening to the composer Wagner. The scriptures alone have a convincing explanation for that evil, which is a word that you find buried in devil. More specifically, the evil of the demonic world orchestrating a, and forming a national mind through bona fide spiritual brainwashing. We see this same national mind in declared atheistic countries like the former Soviet Union and China where everyone was pressed to disown belief in God. Pressed. I mean, they had people, watch, they, they had pe people watching them to see if they, if they said anything or if they betrayed any kind of belief in any God and they would be reported. Snitches. Christians who resisted these beliefs were imprisoned like Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The same happens in Middle Eastern countries dominated by Islam. Leaving Islam or converting to another religion in these countries will get you killed. It's funny, the media never talks about that, does it? In the West, a new national mind is forming. The forced belief in aberrant sexual behaviors, 
homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Yeah, it's interesting. Center for Disease Control says that the risk of lung cancer is 23 times greater for men who don't smoke than for men who don't, I mean for men who, who uh, smoke than for men who don't smoke, which is why the government forces warning labels on all tobacco products. That's a good idea, right? And we're all on this thing. Every time you get on an airplane, you've got to listen to the announcement one more time of a thousand times if you fly a lot. You cannot smoke on this airplane. And, uh, and uh, I mean, we were in Vancouver, and there was somebody smoking close to an outside cafe. And uh, uh, just across the street from where we stay, and Fran saw it. And uh, a person got up and walked up to them and said, you need to get out of here. Quit your smoking. And they do, because... It, because it's just not politically correct to do that. It's a wonderful thing. But did you know that the risk of HIV from sexual contact for men who have sex with men was 150 times greater than heterosexual men in 2010, and we're being forced to believe that it is good? That's a national mindset. That's what he's talking about the world. And this collective kind of thinking, and you can't even think otherwise. Because if you think otherwise, then we've got to deal with you and get and eradicate you. You see? That's what Paul's getting at. There's a devil there. Another national mindset forming is that Islam is good, and that in the face of one Islamic terror attack after another, like Barcelona. Of course, not all Muslims are terrorists. Never believed that, never said that. But their religion teaches jihad. End of sentence. Those who res resist these beliefs will not be tolerated in the national mind. It's becoming politically incorrect, just like it was politically incorrect. They just didn't use those words to be in a communist country and believe in God. <laughs> Or not to believe in uh, fascism in, in Nazi Germany. The German theologian, one of my heroes, and no doubt a hero of <laughs> thousands and thousands of believers, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by hanging because he and other believers resisted the national mind or didn't conform to the pattern of this world. All signs indicating indicate that we're on this exact same path, and those are the two means by which Satan controls people through the flesh and uh, their distorted human nature towards self-centeredness and through the national mind, the world. So why does it matter that we understand that we're not struggling against three distinct but equally equal challenges like the world, flesh, and devil? Oh, it's important in every way. If we're struggling against three distinct but equal entities, then the devil isn't maybe as big a deal as Scripture makes him out to be. But if he is working through our broken nature and through the worldly mind of culture, then what we're facing is a whole lot more sinister. Self-improvement techniques, education, legislation, and improving people's environment won't be enough to ward off such an adversary. True? You say, oh, Ray, maybe you should go back to Vancouver. 
You don't sound very happy and optimistic. Oh, I'm, I'm so very optimistic. Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, 14, for example, he said, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us not behave, um, uh, so let us not, uh, whatever. <laughs> it's in there. The night is nearly over. The time is getting very, very short. And the scripture tells us that Jesus is coming back and he's going to eradicate and deal with evil. We'll get to that now uh, in just a second. But I'm just telling you, I'm not depressed. I'm just saying we better be prepared for what's, what is already at hand and what is coming. And I don't know about you, but I have children and I've got grandkids, enough of them, to make this a, a priority in my thinking every single day. I'm not using hyperbole now. This is not hyperbole. I wake up every single morning and I go into my devotions with the thought, we are headed for trouble. And we better prepare the church and wake up the church. That's why we're in the series. But in the end, <laughs> there's a glorious, glorious return of Jesus and then heaven. And that's not pie in the sky. It is the truth. All right, so why doesn't God remove evil now? Why doesn't he just get rid of it now? If he's going to do it, he will eradicate it. But he's not doing it right now. Why not? Oh, I wish I had time to explore it all. I'll just have time to explore it in this way for today. Have you ever noticed that if you take one evil, another spring up, to, uh, another uh, evil springs up to take its place? I mean, they got rid of uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, and now we have ISIS. They got rid of Libya's Gaddafi; he was killed, and, and then shortly after, the Westerners had to flee the country. Got even worse. In fact, if God were to remove all the evil right now, He'd have to remove mine and yours too. You say, "Well, mine isn't that bad." Did you know that some of history's monsters came from homes in which they experienced such things like abandonment or neglect or so-called absent father? I mean, that, that, that doesn't sound so... I mean, it's not good, but it's not that evil, is it? I mean, how many of you had a father who abandoned or neglected you or was simply not there for you or didn't say I love you or, uh, you know, all those kinds of things? And that, that's why you go to the set free to be, receive inner healing and that kind of stuff. Well, let's bring it a little closer home. How many of you <laughs> have been perfect parents? And uh, when you finish your parenting, you look at it and you say, ah, I didn't do so good. I, I missed it here and I missed it there. I, I felt like that. It's true. So you'd have to remove that evil as well as a contributor to greater evil. Those parents were acting like that, however, in reaction to neglect or stuff done to them, so you'd have to remove that generation's acts or, or neglect too, or take Fran and my sin before marriage, as I've talked about before, which gave the devil a foothold in our family with devastating consequences in our family years later. So if God removed all evil, he would have to remove Fran and I too. How many of you chose to commit some sexual sin and today it's killing your family or perhaps even your ministry? 
So if God were to remove all evil, he'd have to remove you too, and every generation would be removed till you get right back to Adam and Eve. Clearly, removing evil isn't the answer. He would just have to wipe everybody out. That doesn't work. Let's consider something else then. Why did God allow evil then in the first place? He should have prevented it. That's what some say. Well, here's the problem with that. To prevent evil, you'd have to remove choice. Is that true? Is it true? Yeah, you'd have to remove choice. What's the problem if you remove choice? You remove what? Love. And now remains faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is? Can you imagine not knowing love? Can you imagine heaven without love? No, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. My, uh, you know, I've often said in the past, my grandkids hug my legs. Well, there's just a few of them that do that now. Uh, I have some, uh, some uh, grandkids now that pat me on the head <laughs> as they look down at me. <laughs> but if I demanded, and I said to, uh, let's say, Austin and Hallie, the two oldest, and I said, hey, get over here and give Papa a big old hug. Well, they would. But let's say they didn't feel like it, and, they, and, I, and, I, and I forced them. I wouldn't be able to, but would that be love? No. no. You have to have a choice. If you can command it, then it's not love. There has to be a choice. That's why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Not to tempt them to sin, but to give them a real bona fide choice, because without choice, you have no love. Does that make sense? Amen. So he can't remove it. Uh, he can't remove evil. Uh, it, it wouldn't work just to remove evil completely on one hand, and then he'd just have to remove us all. That doesn't solve the problem. Then we're all damned for eternity. And uh, then you have this issue with uh, choice. You've got to keep the choice because of, because of love. That's really important. And uh, if you didn't have choice, all you'd be left with is mechanical robots. That's all we'd be. And God didn't want robots, and I'm glad he didn't. Aren't you? That is one, uh, that's a, that, that's one of the things that's going to make heaven such a wonderful place. People chose to love Jesus there and respond to his love. They chose that. Nobody's going to be in heaven who doesn't want to be there. Aren't you glad? Only those that really want Jesus and love Jesus and love those that love Jesus will be there. Nobody will be forced. That's a, that's a gracious thing. Those who don't want him won't have him. He forces himself on no one. Clearly, removing evil isn't the answer for the time being, though Scripture is full of promises that it will be dealt with soon. Amen. So how, so how did God, how is God, and how will God deal with evil? Well, first of all, in the past, he outmaneuvered evil. I like that. Satan thought he had God in checkmate. In Genesis 3.24, it says, After he drove the man from the garden out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God banished them so they wouldn't eat at the tree of life and thus live forever in the present fallen state. 
And then he, he set out the greatest rescue plan ever conceived. He outmaneuvered the enemy and evil. Second, and, and I don't have time to expand on all these things. We're just touching on them. Second, God slows the progress of evil. Did you know that? If God wasn't slowing the progress of evil, this world would have been consumed a long time ago. Amen. We see it as early as Genesis. Arrogance reached a new height with the building of the Tower of Babel to make a name and create security apart from God. Talk about a national mind set that was going there already. Ex God examined the puny little tower, then confused human languages to slow the progress of evil through mankind's arrogant ambitions. Number three, oh, God is good. Right now, some of you should be shouting. Amen? Amen. I mean, if not, you know, Mennonites wouldn't do it out loud, but even in your heart, you should be exploding, you know. Blood vessels, bursting, intestines, and all the rest. Anyway, number three, God set parameters on evil. Genesis 6, 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So he sent a torrential judgment, blotted out land, animals, and people. God still restrains, you know, in the flood. God still is restraining evil when he sets parameters on evil, preventing nations from going beyond prescribed limits. In chapter 15, verse 16, it says, in the fourth generation, God was speaking to uh, Abraham, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God allows people to get up to a certain point. He has parameters and he says, no farther, no farther. That's as, that's as far as you go. When things go beyond a certain uh, limit, then God often uses another nation or natural disasters as an instrument of judgment. He's, he did it with Israel. He does it with other uh, nations. He said, O house of Israel, I'm bringing a distant nation against you with a sword. They will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. He may not resort to a worldwide flood to cut out evil, but he is still using smaller procedures to cut out the cancer of evil to limit its impact. And the New Testament says that God is restraining evil today. And this is the, uh, this is the passage I was referring to earlier in the message. It says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one, God, who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. God's controlling, God's totally in control of everything. That's amazing. As bad as it is, he's still in control. He's restraining it. Evil in the world today would be much, much worse if it wasn't for God personally restraining evil. Number four. God triumphed over evil at the cross. I love that. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, he's talking to the devil about the curse, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he, seed of the woman Jesus, will crush your head, Satan, and you, devil, will strike his heel. All biblical prophecy springs from this first mother prophecy. At the cross, Jesus dealt a death blow to the devil and his forces. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. What? Doing what? Doing what? Triumphing over 
them by the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. He did. Well, how did he do that? This is how he did it. The devil could, uh, no longer could the devil and his demons keep people enslaved against their will. Oh, he enslaves many. And Jesus affirmed this when he met Paul, who was journeying to Damascus, when he met Paul in that famous Damascus Road experience. In Acts 26, <clears throat> God said, I'm rescuing you, Paul, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the what? Dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Jesus did die to forgive you of your sins. No question about it. He did die to give you eternal life. No question. But he also died to set you free from the, from the enslavement to the dominion of Satan that you could not escape. That's what he set you free from. Is that amazing? He did it at the cross. That's why it says, uh, you know, in Colossians 2, what we read there, in verse 15. Having disarmed the principles and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's incredible. And what is this, uh, and, and uh, what is the condition for this? You choose to receive him. That's it. Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right. The word behind that is exousia. It's another word for power. To become children of God. You can't just walk out of a fortress which is holding you captive. <laughs> you just can't walk out of a fortress. Isn't that true? It takes power to get out. Some kind of power has to get you out of there. And Jesus said that when we receive him, we receive him with his power, and he gets us out of the fortress and the dominion of Satan. And in the context of speaking about Satan, Jesus said exactly that in Mark chapter 3, 27. He said, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. And Jesus tied up the strong man at the cross. Wow. Praise the Lord. It takes God's power to deliver you from Satan's kingdom. That's why Paul said in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is power. In this case, he's not using the word exousia, but dunamis, the, which me, from which we get the word dynamite. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But because of the love issue, you have to choose to receive this. He won't spring you out if you enjoy being under the dominion of Satan. If you like that master, he'll let you be under that master. It isn't foisted upon you. You may refuse God's offer if you like. So, as we sort of sum up this idea of how God deals with evil, we would have to say God doesn't take evil out of the world. Rather, he offers to take you out of evil's grip, out of Satan's kingdom of darkness. Isn't that amazing? 
Oh, the magnitude, riches of God. How wise, how brilliant in his dealing with the devil and evil. And God provides you with armor to resist the devil, and that's what we're, we're going to be talking about. Now, there's a popular teaching that says that the great trouble with most Christians is that we struggle and fight, and therein lies the cause of our defeat. This teaching says that all we have to do is let go and let God. Let him do it for us. Another way of expressing it is to just hand it over to the Lord, and he'll take care of it. And we can continue to go to the beach at St. Malo and drink our Kool-Aid and and God will just take care of all those problems. The Lord will then win the battle for us. It'll be done. Now, if this teaching is true, then all the exhortations in Scripture are not only unnecessary, but they're entirely wrong. The Old Testament, and especially the New Testament, is filled with exhortations and imperative verbs, meaning command verbs. Do this, don't do that. <laughs> you know, forgive one another, bear with one another, love one another. You know, on and on. It, it keeps telling us what we're supposed to do. Imperatives. And it does so about the fight as well with the devil and evil. James chapter 4, just a small sampling, says, resist the devil does it, and he will flee from it. Does that sound like uh, hand it over to the Lord and he'll take care of it? Who's he saying that to, God? Did James say, God, resist the devil and he will flee from you? Is that what James was saying? No, he was saying it to us. Resist the devil. Second Corinthians says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Who's waging the war? We are. Amen. Whose warfare is it? Whose war is it? Ours. The victory belongs to the Lord, but the war is ours to fight. Ephesians 6 says that, and we, we looked at that. You know where he says, be strong, put on our struggle Put on again, and to stand, to stand. How about Paul? Did he just hand over the battle to the Lord? Yes or no? <laughs> Did he just kind of coast through life while others sail through bloody seas, as the hymn writer said? No, 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 no. Read, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and just be totally amazed at the lit litany of things that he went through as he fought. And right at the end, just before he was martyred, knowing that he's about to be martyred, he quickly penned one more letter to his dear friend Timothy. And he said, I have fought the good fight. He, and then he says, I have finished the race. Henceforth there is laid up for me uh, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me, and not only me, but all those who love us appearing. And here's the problem with this false teaching. It's actually heresy, by the way. Those who subscribe to this type of teaching are then attacked by the clever and wily devil, and they don't even know it. And then they fall into some kind of sin, 
or those that they've duped into believing it fall into that, some kind of sin. And they wonder, how can this be happening to me or them? Has the Lord let me down? I handed it over to him. You told me you would fight my battles. Has the Lord failed me? Of course, they can't say that. So they'll say something like, the problem is with your abiding in him. You must have quit abiding in him. That's why you fell. Ah, there it is. So even they have to admit that in the end, you have to do something. Amen? Here's the good news. God has not left us defenseless. Praise the Lord for that. He gives us three things to fight with. <clears throat> his strength, his armor, and weapons. And in the coming weeks, we'll learn about the armor. And uh, by the way, this is not how you put on armor. <laughs> you wake up every morning. If it is, then we wouldn't need a series. And you say, okay, dear God, today I'm uh, buckling up with my belt of truth. And today, Lord, I'm putting on my helmet of salvation. And dear Jesus, I am picking up the shield of faith. And dear God, I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And I'm, and I'm going to tie my shoes with the fittedness for the readiness of the gospel. Amen. That's not how you do it. That's magic. That's just a formula. That's not what Paul was getting at. And that's what we're going to address. And by the way, if you do that, God bless you. You're not bad. You're not sinful. Satan's not taking advantage of you. But you don't really know then how to put it on. And you and I need to know how to put it on properly. All right? Lastly, God will judge the, the devil and eradicate all evil in hell. On one hand, God are upset, uh, people are upset that God doesn't eradicate evil, though doing so would eradicate all of us, so he restrains us instead. On the other hand, people are upset when God finally does stop evil by judging people in hell, removing those who refuse to be rescued. You can't have it both ways. That proves you're not sincere in your stated quest for the truth. Your own mouth convicts you of your rebellion towards God. You've proven that it's not God's ways that bother you so much as God himself. You don't want to be ruled by him. That's the problem. And in the end, God will cast the devil and those under his dominion into the lake of fire. It says, and John said, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And then in the next chapter, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And here's the encouragement for you. The, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The time is short. He's going to rise up. There's going to be a harlot. There's going to be a mystery Babylon. There's going to be a great war. There's going to be all kinds of difficulties. We see the stirring of our world. You turn on the news today, it is just one thing after another. The world is, is in a boiling turmoil. It's heating up. But that's just the precursor to the final showdown, and Satan will be crushed as God predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He repeats it here through the Apostle Paul. 
And so we have something to look forward to. Amen? Amen. Wow. Here's a weekly challenge for you. Memorize Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 18 in this series. Notice, I've been really good about it. I didn't say for next week. In the whole series, 10 to 18, you need to know it. Because with those, with those, um, those pictures, you know, the helmet and the, and the belt and all of that, it'll help you, if you memorize, it'll help you to remember what it is that you should be putting on. We're going to find out what that armor, what it is actually that you are putting on and what the components of what you're putting on are. And if you memorize it, you'll never forget it. In fact, I'm starting to press Christians wherever I go now, memorize the word and know it. I think we should, well, I'll say more about that next week. And then for next week, just memorize 10 to 13. That's the part that we just discussed today. And then if you memorize that, then for the following week, it'll just be like one or two verses and that kind of stuff, and you can do it. And we're going to do it together. Amen? That's a wonderful uh, challenge. You say, well, I'm, I'm 80, and, or I'm 70, or I'm 60. I'm 63, almost. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to face some of these things. Well, possibly you won't face them in the same way. However, your children and your grandchildren will. <laughs> and we've got to be examples. Amen? Yeah. Perhaps you walked into the service today, and uh, after hearing this message, the Holy Spirit stirred in you and convinced you that what I was talking about was the truth. And you don't want to live under the dominion of Satan anymore. You want to be set free from the enslavement of sin. You want to walk with Jesus in the light. You want to move from the... Uh, kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, then you can, you can pray and receive Jesus right now. In fact, I'm going to pray a prayer right now, and I'm going to ask the church to follow me out loud, as we often do. And if you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, and you'd like to become a Christian, then why don't you follow along in this prayer? And uh, don't pray it to me or to anyone here. Just pray to God, and he will hear your prayer, and he will answer it. Dear God, everybody follow me. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. Thank you for showing me the truth from your word. It has really spoken to me. And I realize today that I'm apart from God. I'm actually under the dominion of Satan. I've been enslaved because he's duped me but no longer I want to become a child of the kingdom of light I want to become a Christ follower thank you Jesus for dying on the cross for my sins thank you that you defeated the devil ultimately at the cross and today because I love you I choose you. I receive you. Please come into my life. I make you Lord of my life today. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.